My name is uh, Sylvia Kay. I'm a researcher at the Transnational Institute, uh, TNI for short. Uh, we're an international think tank uh, based in Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands. Um, yeah, and we work a lot on lots of different um, issues related to globalization um, from a kind of critical perspective. Um, so we have different teams working on different issues. Um, yeah, everything from international drug policy reform uh, to looking at um, how to maintain uh, key public services in, 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 in public ownership. Uh, my team, which I'm part of, uh, is the environmental and agrarian justice team. Uh, so it's kind of looking at the politics around um, key natural resources like land, food, uh, fisheries, seeds, uh, forests, um, and how we can kind of uh, make the kind of models of governance around them more democratic and, and uh, particularly empower the people that actually uh, produce the food and, and rural communities that depend on these natural resources for their livelihoods. Um, how can we put them in the, in the heart of decision making um, when it comes to how these kind of natural resources uh, are governed. And what do you expect from uh, participating in uh, uh, this meeting? So I'm participating in this uh, European Rural Sustainability Gathering for the first time, actually. I, I, um, I hadn't heard about it before, but um, it just so happened that, that someone who I knew in the Netherlands, um, who attended a previous meeting of uh, this Forum Synergies event, had really recommended it to me as a, as a, as a yeah, uh, a great kind of networking opportunity. So to come into contact with lots of different actors from all over Europe um, with different perspectives. Um, and I think it, for me, has been a, a really nice opportunity to gain some insight into um, how practitioners kind of experience uh, rural development and, and rural development uh, thinking and, and implementation of plans, um, the kind of challenges and, and issues that come up with, with um, how different actors um, are involved and, and how sort of at a more regional and local level um, decision making can really be made more democratic. Um, yeah, and, and I was also, I have to say, very much attracted that it was happening in Greece uh, this year um, because I, I think the theme um, also really spoke to me of, of this year's gathering, which was sustainability in a time of crisis, um, which I think, yeah, there's, there are multiple crises going on and I think it's a very relevant theme and it's very... Um, pertinent than to also hold it in Greece for that reason. So one of your leaflets mentions that you are actually advocating against land grabbing. Is that right? So ca can you define what do you mean by land grabbing? Yeah, so land grabbing, um, we explicitly don't provide an, uh, an authoritative, definitive way uh, or, or definition of, of land grabbing. Uh, unlike some um, policymakers who are or, uh, more powerful actors who are very interested in having a very fixed uh, legal definition of the term land grabbing. Um, we think that land grabbing is not necessarily something that's illegal, although often it is. Often um, communities are, are, are not consulted at all. Um, their land tenure rights are not respected. Uh, sometimes there's elements of, of corruption and, and other kind of irregularities. Um, but we argue that even if um, these very large-scale land deals were made more transparent and, and procedures were made more regular, that there are still issues to consider around um, the impact these kind of large-scale land deals and, and the model of development that they often represent. Uh, it's often a model of development which takes land away from um, uh, sort of more small-scale, um, multifunctional uses um, towards a model which is much more geared towards um, 
industrial type production models um, and geared much more to a kind of extractive model where wealth is extracted from the, the area and doesn't necessarily get returned uh, to the area. Um, so we argue that, that those are also very important elements to consider. So the whole kind of social justice element of, of a land deal is also very important. And we would consider both, both the process and, and the, the substance important elements to consider. And uh, how do you think that we can tackle this land grabbing? Yeah, I think it, 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 uh, we can tackle land grabbing um, through different elements. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that there's a, there's a sort of um, one-size-fits-all solution and, and that I have all the answers, but um, at the Transnational Institute, what we, we work on kind of two levels, I would say. Uh, one is really um, empowering uh, local communities and, and kind of organized networks of, uh, for example, small-scale food producers to really um, be aware of their rights, to be able to claim and defend their rights as well. Uh, so we do kind of trainings and workshops um, with them um, to, to really, uh, yeah, help them uh, uh, amplify their voices and, and claim their rights. And uh, the trainings that we do are often um, based on, on how they can use kind of key uh, policy instruments. Um, so one of the key policy instruments that we work with are these um, international guidelines, which are called the responsible uh, guidelines for the responsible governance of tenure of land, fisheries and forests. And they were elaborated um, at the United Nations Committee on World Food Security with the key participation and uh, voice of um, those most affected and those most marginalized. So small-scale food producers actually negotiated those guidelines alongside the government. Um, and they have a much more human rights-based approach when it comes to uh, land tenure rights uh, rather than a purely kind of market or commodity uh, um, approach. And so, yeah, we, we work um, with uh, local communities to, to help them understand those guidelines better and how they can use them. Um, and then, like I said, uh, the second dimension is then um, working at uh, doing some kind of advoc advocacy work with um, public policy makers um, to really also um, point out their responsibility to, to implement uh, those guidelines. Um, but can you make this connection between land and human rights? Can you define this perspective of the people that feel the problem? Absolutely. Um, I would say that land and human rights are very much connected. Um, land uh, is often treated, treated just as a simple uh, item of merchandise, as a simple commodity that can just be uh, traded on a land market based on a kind of um, what the World Bank calls a willing buyer, willing seller model. So it's basically if you can mobilize enough, if you want to sell your land uh, and there's a buyer that can mobilize enough capital, um, a trade in, in land can take place. Um, but what we argue is that land is much more than just a simple uh, uh, factor of production. Um, it has a real significance, um, not just economically, the fact that uh, rural communities depend on the land for their, for their livelihoods. It also has cultural significance. People, you know, f uh, many people in rural areas feel a real sense of belonging and connection to the land. Um, and it's the basis for, for social organization, uh, for the continuation of many traditions, um, and a way of living. And uh, so we feel that those, those uh, elements definitely are under-considered. Um, and what, what we, we argue is that um, beyond just uh, 
uh, having uh, legal ownership over land, uh, it's also important to recognize, and this is where things like those guidelines that I was referring to earlier are, are very useful, that communities, um, some of them have legitimate tenure rights. So these are, are rights that are not necessarily enshrined, enshrined in law, but uh, through years of customary practice or informal practice, um, they have gained legitimate kind of a claim over, over this land. Um, yeah, and so for that, for that reason, there's a, there's a whole argument to be made that that, that land is a key uh, vehicle for the realization of, of multiple um, economic, social, and cultural rights. You also mentioned that, uh, can you describe the, your aspiration to create a cities, a land observatory? What is this observatory going to be? What is it, its vision, its goals? So T and I, together with um, a number of other uh, social movements and, and civil society organizations, has been um, fighting for quite a while in, 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 in Europe, actually, to create what we call a European land observatory. And this is based on the fact that we've identified that there are real uh, land problems in Europe. Uh, it's often assumed that, that in Europe there are no kind of, that the land question is closed, that we have a kind of well-functioning land market. Um, so what are the problems? But what we've identified, and this is based on um, some research and, and case studies that we've documented, um, together with uh, key social movement actors like uh, European Coordination of Via Campesina, which is the uh, peasants' movement in, in Europe, um, they've documented various different case studies of land issues in Europe, and they range from everything from land grabbing. We, we can speak of land grabbing in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, land, but also land speculation. So simply, land is being farm, productive, fertile farmland is being bought up, not with the intention to produce anything, but simply to, to hold it as an investment, or to hold it as purely as a, a sort of speculative um, investment which is then sold off after a few years for a much higher price. Um, also problems around um, what's sometimes referred to as land artificialization. It's a kind of uh, term that's used by French activists and it refers to um, farmland, uh, fertile farmland that is um, uh, brought out of agricultural production and is um, kind of rezoned and reclassified for various other purposes, everything from um, big infrastructure projects, uh, urbanization, um, tourism and, and golf courses. Um, and it it's, uh, sometimes has real problems because it means that farmers are deprived of, of access to land. Um, so there's a kind of range of, of problems uh, around land in Europe. And the reason we're then calling for this European Land Observatory is to monitor much, much closer uh, what is going on uh, throughout Europe when it comes to those different um, aspects of, of, uh, of those kind of land problems I was talking about. And, and actually, um, it's based on the fact that there is no real pan-European tool to monitor what is going on around farmland in Europe. Uh, there are some uh, national level databases and, and some, some statistics that, that do accumulate some, some facts at European level, but not in any kind of coherent or comprehensive fashion. And so we're, we're calling for this European Land Observatory to monitor things like the price of land, the, also the rental pl uh, price, uh, ownership structure, um, but also things like environments, key environmental and social criteria, so um, employment levels, soil quality, 
uh, yeah, just to gain a much better insight and to, to better inform decision making uh, around land. You also mention uh, uh, words like uh, sovereignty, food, food sovereignty, and uh, sufficiency. How can you guarantee that these concepts are not used uh, to an uh, exclusionary political discourse? How can you fight against these, uh, uh, let's say, occupations of the meanings of some uh, words like these? So, um, one of the solutions um, we see um, to land grabbing issues and, and this land concentration dynamics uh, many other problems around uh, the food system in Europe uh, and, and worldwide is uh, this concept of food sovereignty. And uh, food sovereignty, as it's defined by uh, Via Campesina, for example, um, is seen really as uh, the opportunity to take back control of, uh, of the food system away from uh, a kind of state of monopoly power, which, which um, these big... Uh, agro-input providers, these big uh, food processors and retailers and, and transnational corporations really have a kind of monopoly power over the food system. Um, and uh, what food sovereignty seeks to do is to really politicize and democratize the, the, the food system uh, and to argue that people have the right uh, to decide their own food system uh, based on, on healthy um, and environmentally sound uh, production methods. Um, and it really puts food producers and the, the, the people that work the land at the heart of decision-making. But um, we, there is a challenge in using this term food sovereignty, um, and it's a challenge that emerges with um, when we talk about who is the sovereign really in food sovereignty. And there are different debates around that, and it's not always sometimes clearly defined who is the sovereign in food sovereignty. Is it the, the farmers? and the small farmers um, and, and other food producers like, like the fishers and pastoralists and, and indigenous peoples? Um, is it the state? And does the state then have, have you know, some sovereign power over, over the food system? Is it the people, however vaguely they're defined? Um, and uh, it's a kind of gray area. And um, some of the danger I see in that is that some of the language around sovereignty can be captured by um, groups or, or political uh, parties or people of a particular political leaning that have a, that have a very different uh, vision. Um, uh, so I'm thinking here of, of uh, for example, can, can this kind of term sovereignty be captured by the rise of authoritarian populist parties, you know, right-wing extremists that also talk about taking back control and also talk about... Um, uh, have a kind of anti-globalization uh, rhetoric. Um, but uh, they use the term sovereignty, I believe, um, in a way in which it creates new exclusions. Um, it's, it's often for a very particular uh, yeah, set of people that, that uh, they have in mind. And um, the, the vision of food sovereignty, certainly that the European movement and international movement for food sovereignty would subscribe to, um, which is also referred to as the Nihileni movement for food sovereignty. It's a, a vision that totally rejects any form of um, discrimination, uh, xenophobia, or racism. And it's, it's a food sovereignty that doesn't seek to um, reward only a particular group of people to the detriment of another group of people. Um, 
but yeah, I still see it as, a, as something that we should be very careful against. You also mentioned the uh, will of your team to uh, bridge the chasm between uh, citizens and scientists. Can you define, can you explain how you actually intend to bridge this division between these communities? At TNI, we have um, a way of doing research and a way of doing uh, our analysis and our work, um, which we call scholar activism. And it's based a bit on this idea that um, ne neither purely uh, academic or, or purely scientific uh, knowledge, nor um, knowledge that emanates from the grassroots and, and uh, from lived experience and from uh, field practice, um, neither they, both, both sets don't hold exclusive value and exclusive knowledge. And um, it's an approach which seeks to sort of blend uh, insights and experience from both, um, both those two realms. Um, and it's a way in which we seek to do kind of a, what we call, also call a co-production of knowledge. So um, a lot of the analysis that TNI does is peer-reviewed in, in a kind of academic sense and is uh, we have key experts that uh, from the academic or um, expert field that, that review our work, but it's work that's often um, informed by, by case studies that we do together with social movement actors, that they provide, they, uh, provide us with key case studies. Um, sometimes we will even do pieces of joint writing and, and joint analysis. Um, and it's also uh, the mission a bit of our, of our research is research that, that empowers those kind of social movement actors, um, but without losing the, the also cutting edge intellectual and academic rigor. Mm -hmm.